Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Ukrainian producers Max Dankovich and Taras Stadnikov, Echo Rights Managing Director Frederick F. Malmborg, Distributor of President Zelensky's Servant of the People, HBO Max International Chief Johannes Larcher, World of Wonder co-founder Fenton Bailey, Blockchain Creative Labs and Bento Box Entertainment Chief Executive Scott Greenberg, and the C21 team, all from MIP TV 2022 in Cannes. MIP TV wrapped in Cannes on Wednesday, and the C21 team was there covering all the latest developments from the market, catching up with some of the keynote speakers, producers and distributors taking part, as you may have heard on C21 FM throughout this week. Russia's war on Ukraine cast a pall over proceedings, but the industry showed its support for the Ukrainian TV business with a number of initiatives designed to help the country rebuild. Beyond the conflict, buyers and sellers at MIP did their best to carry on as normal, with the event and the sector as a whole still regrouping since the COVID-19 pandemic. There was plenty to discuss, including Candle Media co-founder Kevin Mayer's continued commitment to Will Smith's Westbrook Media, a new Arthurian drama from Sony Pictures Television and Bad Wolf, plus the evolution of bikini reality. Channel 21 International Editor Nico Franks, C21 Kids Editor Carolina Kaminska and Drama Quarterly Editor Michael Pickard gave me their verdict on MIP TV 2022 and we'll be hearing from them later on. But first, we hear from Max Dankovich and Taras Stadnikov, co-founders of Ukrainian production company Inner Gravity Pictures, about their respective journeys to Cannes and the terrible impact the Russian invasion has had back home as they seek partners for their slate of high-end scripted projects and urge the international TV industry to collaborate with the stricken but united Ukrainian TV business. Stadnikov was already in Spain when Russia attacked Ukraine on February the 24th, while Dankovich, who fought in the Balkans War in 1995, isn't required to serve as he's a father of more than three children. Both said they've nevertheless had to wrestle with the decision whether to return to Ukraine and fight or do the best they can to help the country from afar. They spoke to Nico Franks. Okay, my name is Max Dankovich. I'm a Ukrainian writer and producer. I'm in industry for about 25 years. I started as a cameraman. Um, I finished uh, Ukrainian uh, film school as a cameraman. Then I uh, was a founder of the biggest rental facilities in Ukraine for a while. And uh, I spent a few years as a producer of the, one of the biggest Ukrainian TV channels. And three, with the, three years and something, we, uh, we established a brand new uh, development company called Inner Gravity Pictures in Kiev, Ukraine. Uh, hi, my name is Taras Stadnikov, and um, I'm from Ukraine, Kiev as well, uh, Inner Gravity Pictures. I'm a producer and uh, I have an entrepreneurial uh, background, so I'm in the industry like for about three years, four years. And uh, I've been uh, doing like companies, I had a company creating um, characters for games and uh, developing from them from scratch, their stories, all that. And, um, you know, I've been in, in the IT industry and a few other industries selling my companies and we're now in here. Um, trying to bring more more systematic approach and uh, technologies to, to the industry. So, as far as you can, tell me a bit about your journey here to MIP TV today. Well, um, I think Max's journey is way more more <laughs> fascinating. But for me, you know, um, um, I'm not sure if like how how I would, I would 
I would start it, but you know, I would start it from war, right? Because um, I woke up uh, having a flight to London on the 24th, and uh, I wrote a message that there was a like a first explosion there, and uh, you know, the the shock came because we I was with my girlfriend, and we like we didn't know what to do. Obviously, we haven't flew to London, and we actually we had a few extra flights later, you know, to other other places. But obviously, we cancelled everything, and then it was like I don't know, probably two weeks or something of complete shock, uh, like where you you're you know you're unable to think to do anything or whatever, and um, it was mixed with a huge energy and actions towards kind of helping helping my country because I was obviously outside of it and I was eager to do whatever I can like evacuating people helping with humanitarian uh, support and all that uh, kind of as far as I was a little bit more uh, let's say I kept more cognitive functions than people who were over there I, I suppose myself being helpful you know uh, for for people and organizing and uh, yeah so I was in Spain and I stayed there uh, for a while and uh, we we've been uh, there then you know our, our, our like my girlfriend's family came uh, she, she they they were relocated by by the company and uh, we stayed there for 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 months and right now I'm arriving here from from Spain basically um, like. It's uh, actually it's feel, feeling very weird being here because you know all the all the luxury like all the yeah everything's grand you know everything is I, I don't know the proper word but posh or something and uh, it's uh, I don't know I, I it feels like I don't belong here because you know I have to be with my country with my people but uh, on the other hand I understand this is probably the place for me to be because. Um, I have to kind of, I'm responsible for rebuilding the country and uh, uh, for, for a resurrection of our country. So I have to, like, while, you know, some people have their front, like actual front fighting, I, I'm fighting here for to bring more partners, more uh, broadcasting partners, more financial partners towards our country and kind of creating those uh, y unities between, you know, Ukrainian talents and and uh, world's uh, opportunities. And so Max Taras set you up there. He said your your story is more interesting. Well, it's just different. Uh, a part of being a professional, I'm uh, also a father of five. And uh, the first day of war was uh, the day where when our youngest son turns uh, four months old. So it was quite a date for us. And we woke up at uh, something past 4 a.m. from the distant explosions. And uh, I was at war in 1995 in Croatia and Serbia. So I really recognized these sounds very well. So we packed a car and we moved to um, our summer house. It's just a 20 minutes drive uh, out of Kiev. But uh, in a week, things uh, looked being even worse, uh, so that uh, we decided to go. And now we are staying at my uh, friend's uh, summer house in Italy, San Remo, with three younger, uh, youngest kids. Uh, so it was ju uh, quite a way uh, of uh, 2,500 kilometers from Kiev to here.
and really uh, first weeks were really weird and uh, we uh, we are good now to make our everyday routines and uh, stuff like this but it really when it comes to a writing process or some creative stuff it's still hard but uh, we understand that we still have our voices and have stories to be told they are all of uh, Ukrainian origin historical political, ethnical, and uh, social backgrounds. We have a bunch of them different. And uh, these days, we need uh, really a big support of uh, different kind of, of partners from all around the world. And uh, this is what we are going to do. I think I think we should kind of. I don't know if it's you know the the part of the story will be the part of the story, but uh, I think uh, we really have to share it, like some stories of our families. Uh, it just it feels feels right because you know my mom stays at Zaporizhia right now and the front is very close. She's relatively safe. The nuclear power station is 60 kilometers uh, near, and you know when I've heard stories of uh, like Russian military forces attacking the nuclear power plant, I was like. No way! If like I, I have to evacuate her, and obviously I was trying to, to to persuade her, but she's she's there with my brother, who is uh, like who became emotionally unstable right now because of this situation, and uh, you know she there is she, her her mother instinct. She says like I can't live without him, or like I can't live with him because he's obviously he, he's not able to do the road. So. Um, My parents are there right now, and uh, I, I think Max has, has a, has a, I don't know how to say it, but a story about evacuating his mom. Mm. Yeah, my my mother lived in the uh, northern west part uh, above the Kiev, and uh, it was the hottest spot uh, where the, the, the war starts, uh, the, the, the Russian tried to attack Kiev from this uh, area but the, these days no one recognizes it will it, it's gonna be the the hardest one uh, and uh, her house is like 10 kilometers away from Bucha and Erpen um, known now as a as a places of massacre and uh, she rejected when I called her um, to evacuate to be being evacuated uh, and uh, next day uh, They had uh, electricity shut down, and uh, she spent five days living behind the fridge, hiding, um, and uh, she she was unable to go out because of the the the, the strikes and explosions around. And uh, on a day sixth, uh, we I sent the GPRS data to our military guys, and they took her with us. Now she is awaiting. Uh, um, of, uh, she's she's going to uh, Canada. She she's got uh, now uh, Canadian visa, and uh, I have my uh, youngest brother. He's now a citizen of Canada for five last years. So she's now now in in safety. I also have uh, my father. He uh, remains to live in Kiev, and he's not going anywhere. Uh, two of my elder kids. Uh, Uh, my son relocated from Lviv, uh, Lviv University to uh, Istanbul, uh, so he became a student in some private uh, high school there. And my daughter uh, moved with uh, her 
Spanish boyfriend uh, on the north of Spain. So we're quite uh, uh, located in five different different countries right now. And Taras, I think you alluded to it earlier, saying how surreal it is to be here, and there is such a kind of contrast, obviously, mm-hmm. between you know Cannes of all places mm-hmm. and finding yourselves here. In term and, and and Max, you mentioned seeking support in terms of, I guess, from the industry. So do you see signs of that happening? Do you think enough is being done? Uh, in my opinion, it's a bit too soon to say anything in particular, but uh, there is a big hope. Uh, and uh, we're already uh, feeling the huge support uh, in uh, different aspects of uh, relationship with Ukraine and other countries. So respectively, I assume we might find uh, th- this uh, amount of support uh, for the uh, t- television industry as well. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I think the challenge right now is to uh, find practical ways of um, kind of having that support or, or finding mutual interest for those countries because obviously you know Ukraine is not a big market right now yes it has 40 million people it has a potential right but for you know right now um, it's not a big market and uh, then um, obviously people care about what is happening but you know when it uh, comes to actions and uh, like sustainable actions it has to be you know a mutual interest and I think the challenge right now is to overcome the first part where you know everyone wants to support and they say they want to do it to, to real actions and to finding that you know solution of integrating Ukrainian talents into like English-speaking European markets and all that, because obviously we we don't see any possible cooperation with the Russian market. I don't know for how many years, and uh, this means like we, we have to find we have to carve our way you know towards the English-speaking markets. Mm-hmm. And in terms of your approach to the market and the projects you're here, so tell me a bit about those and what you're what you're looking, what deals you're hoping to do while you're here potentially. Um, uh, the first um, answer is kind of from my heart, which I'm a little bit uh, like uh, frustrated, shocked and lost because, uh, you know, obviously we, we, we were able to have a strategy beforehand, kind of bring some money from Russian market, Russian pl- platforms. It was an emerging market and uh, many hopes were put there because, you know, the platforms had first deals and all that. and. Uh, we designed some of our stories kind of to have uh, Russian-speaking territories as a proof of concept. And uh, right now we have to we have to refigure it out, right? And I don't have the answer yet because I don't understand like how the market, like did the market really change at least for, you know, for a bit. Um, because if it if it hadn't, I don't have a solution yet. Um, because um, um, you know we we weren't able to bring much money from from Ukrainian channels right now, and uh, yeah, it's like I, I I think we'll have to be very creative on finding finding the solution. But what we do have is uh, is a very um, up to date. Uh, agenda, topics, themes, and characters, because I think we were like 
one of the best people in the world right now to kind of uh, to to share um, some some values like you know resilience uh, standing like light against the darkness and when there is a one in the hopeless uh, world how how he could change it and uh, we you know we've been developing those stories with about these themes for, for, for years and right now they became like extremely relevant and this could be our point at the market and uh, um, I, I'm not sure if we need to you know to westernize uh, our characters or stories this is uh, the question right now um, it could be if the, if the market had changed a bit and you know the attention that the world has right now towards Ukraine as a as a beacon you know for for the values I don't know so if Ukraine is a beacon right now for those values uh, probably Ukrainian talents are are the best representatives for for those values and we could kind of create them really deep and uh, share those and I think we will be able to touch hearts. How much communication have you had with your fellow Ukrainian TV companies because there is there's a stand here at MIT TV um, there is something of a push behind you know Ukraine in solidarity um, how much have you been talking to your your fellow colleagues not much really because we all were busy with um, settling our lives and uh, the majority of Ukrainian television switched to uh, news programs mainly as, as long as you can understand so uh, um, we don't have uh, particular plans and strategies as how to uh, how to keep going uh, producing uh, such uh, shows as uh, we are developing right now. So we hope to uh, see them around, to speak with uh, uh, people from other countries and from Ukraine, and uh, we'll check what we can do in the new situation. You know, it's funny enough, like that, that we being um, in, like in in some processes, yeah, like setting our lives up, uh, but um, the the, the uh, uh, charity telemarphone, we like we being, you know, I personally being uh, helping to share some content and all that. So I'm like, I was in touch with one plus one, all that. But I think yes, we do have unity, and what have happened is we we feel that. Um, uh, internally, um, with like all the barriers which which were between the people are just gone right now, and then we became way more effective. We became way more efficient. We kind of are so much result oriented, really fast. Like we've been fast as a nation beforehand, but right now it feels like we're you know we've been part of some processes, but we haven't have much time of, on talking on you know on, even on this initiative and that's like our uh, lives look like it's you know we're very like goal oriented and task oriented right now just mm-hmm. boom 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 if the task closed and you further we don't have much time for you know for regular small talks or something and honestly um, it's like being a, a few days or so I've, I've, I've started smiling and uh, it's uh, I think it, it's just you know, by 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 sharing this story, you can feel how our life look like right now, and uh, um, we will definitely see our our fellow Ukrainians and uh, hug each other and uh, feel the unity here. And this is really truthful that you know, since day one when the war started, it was something intangible, and it happened to everyone I know, 
I don't know. I'm I'm not a believer in like you know magical things or anything, but I can't call it anyhow. But magic that we became like a solid solid unit, and um, all the good like what people have inside just popped up. Uh, it's very inspirational. And part of showing solidarity, or well, some of the, one of the ways TV companies have shown solidarity with Ukraine is by cutting ties. Uh, with you, with Russian um, mm. companies, and you know, if they were distributing Russian content, taking that off their slates, what would you want to say to any company that is still working with Russia? Uh, it's hard. Um, honestly, I don't have the right words because I want. Um, you know, we have, we have, we have. Um, Obviously, we have anger and we have aggression and we have uh, like many bad feelings about uh, about about uh, about Russian Russia at all. And I know there are good people uh, there, uh, and uh, I know there are many against the regime. And but it's still hard to kind of separate um, one from each, from another. And um, I would say that if you if you work if you work with Russia and you get money either from there or you uh, or you pay money there it like you're just supporting the war and killing of people and uh, women uh, women and uh, kids and uh, I for me it's it's even hard to say the proper words like you know uh, you know people uh, it's really hard because I don't know, man. Like, it's it's really hard for me to 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 talk about this. Well, I had uh, I used to have uh, hundreds of uh, connection uh, in Russia. Uh, they're mostly uh, business uh, partners and colleagues. And uh, since uh, the beginning of war, I received I have received only a few calls from a really close friends and uh, from one really random person it was a uh, it was a uh, words of support and uh, mm, but uh, speaking of uh, keep keeping uh, business it's not an option for us any anymore and uh, I don't see a perspective of uh, coming uh, next 50 years or 100 years I, I, I don't know so uh, and uh, whoever is uh, keep doing business with Russia, you're doing it at your own risk. Thank you for talking to me and obviously yeah, our thoughts are with all your family in Ukraine. Max Dankovic and Taras Stadnikov speaking with Nico Franks. Nico also spoke with Frederick F. Malmborg, Managing Director of CJ E&M owned Echo Rights, distributor of the satire that propelled Volodymyr Zelensky from comedian to Ukrainian president. So tell me a bit about Echo Rights' preparations for, for this year's MIP TV. Obviously it's a, a MIP TV unlike any other in so many ways. Well, uh, we've been, uh, we'd had a very strong year, um, very good development in uh, our different uh, offices around the world. So Turkey is, of course, doing very well, and we produce a number of very exciting series there. But our uh, most um, new and interesting slate uh, is the um, one from the UK, where we have uh, three, four series in, in production. 
So we're launching two of them here at, at MIP, uh, Desperate Measures and, and uh, Compulsion, uh, that are a new, new UK series. And then, of course, we work with our Korean mother company, CJENM. So we, we, we launch a number of Korean series. And uh, yeah, it's good to be in, be in Cannes. And a lot of the, the communications from Echo Rights in advance of the market um, were about a specific show, so um, Servant of the People, yeah. uh, which obviously stars uh, the now Ukrainian president Zelensky. So tell me a bit about the reaction to that show. Obviously, it's been around for a few years, but obviously become horribly relevant in a lot of ways. So what has Echo Rights been doing with that show? No, it was. It's it's an it's a really incredible story. 2016, we had Zelensky himself here at our cocktail party in in Cannes, launching his new political satire TV show. That was three years before he was um, president. Now, Netflix picked it up as the first CIS show ever because it was a very clever script. And then uh, reality uh, caught up, and uh, he went for president uh, three years later. And now the way he has turned the hero of, of the, the, the free world is, is really incredible. It was Antenna in Greece who called when I was in the ski lift and said, Frederick, do you remember that Zelensky show? We, sh- we should put that in prime time every night at, you know, every night the coming weeks. And uh, of course, um, of course, we, um, they did. And uh, we had it on Channel 4 in the UK. Netflix bought it worldwide, non-exclusive, and we're making like... I think, I mean, a huge number of deals. And SVT had it in Sweden last night. And uh, I mean, I'm, I've, I think it's, it's a very interesting story. Uh, of course, a very unique piece of TV series and a very relevant background to, uh, to the Zelensky as a personality. And of course, we're donating, uh, we're donating large part of, of our commission to the uh, Ukraine uh, Red Cross uh, to, uh, to uh, support and the rest goes to Studio Quartal, of course, the producer. But it's, of course, it's, a, it's an, some are an awkward series also to show, but very relevant. And Nicholas Sutherland, so the MD of Echo Rights, he has quite a close personal relationship with Zelensky. So tell yeah. me a bit about how that relationship has I evolved. I think it started, we, we many years ago, we had a comedy series from Studio Quartal, which is his production company called Crack Them Up. That, that we adapted in a number. It's still running, I think, in Vietnam, and we did a Chinese version and so. So uh, Zelensky and his production company were like one of the producers that we represented. And then uh, Servant of the People came, and, and we've been... I mean, Nikola has been in, in Ukraine for, for many years, and we've been uh, working actively on it together to, uh, yeah, to support them. As, as, because we've always been, been actively looking for new source countries. So uh, Turkey was one of them, and, and uh, we've—I mean—we've always been impressed by the creativity and the quality in the in the Ukraine media industry, and and really the, to support them in any way we can right now, I think it's incredibly important. And that is also included in in solidarity with Ukraine, removing the Russian series that you were distributing. Yes, of course. I mean, every industry does what we can to uh, somehow take a stand in this conflict. I think and. Uh, so we've been doing quite a lot of Russian series throughout the years. So it's, of course, it's, it's tragic from a personal point of view because it's, after all, uh, human beings who may not agree with the, with the president. But that's, that's, of course, necessary as any industry to isolate them, to, to, uh, um, to make sure that we, we uh, show our support. And what have you made of the overall kind of international TV industry reaction to the, the situation in Ukraine and the efforts to, to support the Ukrainian people? I don't know. I mean, um, I think there is a lot. I mean, I saw some trade publication making a really good 
uh, summary of of, of of TVB's made a summary of, of the Ukraine media industry. I think I've seen, I mean, we have lots of friends who've been, been, obviously are from Ukraine and are supporting them to find new jobs in every country and so. So I think anything, because we see also from the development, if you don't have a free media, how, how bad a country can go. So I think it's really important to support any, any way we can. Um, I mean, there's lots of documentaries being done and, and, uh, and, uh, and those things to, to, uh, to tell different, different stories and, and to support the industry and maybe hiring people who, are, who are, have, have to flee. Frederick F. Malmborg. Next, Nico Korta with HBO Max International Chief Johannes Larcher following his MIP TV keynote. But prior to news from the US that Jason Keelar, chief executive of Parent Warner Media, will be stepping down once the company's merger with Discovery completes soon, and that HBO Max boss Andy Forsell will also be leaving. The pair previously led Hulu and brought Larcher on board back then as their first overseas employee. I'm Johannes Larcher. I uh, work for HBO Max and I oversee HBO Max's global business, and that involves rolling out HBO Max uh, to 190 countries, hopefully by 2026, and the day-to-day operation of the business in markets where we have launched. So you've just delivered the MIP TV keynote. What were some of the key things that you wanted to get across to the audience? This was a great opportunity to update uh, the business and the community about the progress we've made with HBO Max's international rollout. Uh, We've been at this for a while now. We launched last year, mid-year, in Latin America and have since launched in uh, 21 countries in Europe. Uh, So it was a great opportunity to provide an update on progress. Uh, It's been going very well. But also talk a little bit about the things that make us slightly different, maybe, in in the major streamers around the world and how we approach the business how we focus heavily on being a local service as much as we are global in nature. We want and need to deliver a service that resonates with local audiences first and foremost. So we we talked about that. We also uh, spoke a little bit about uh, the content on the platform, uh, the progress we've made on our product and technology, uh, and about, uh, about the future, the aspiration and the roadmap ahead to get to the 190 countries. And which territory would you say kind of best encapsulates how you think HBO Max kind of works best in terms of balance between local originals and the imports as well? I'll, I'll just mention Latin America. Um, it's the market that we've been in the longest now, although it's only been nine months. Uh, we've done a few things in Latin America that are really unique and stand out. So, for example, we, we launched live sports in Latin America. Uh, HBO Max does not currently offer that anywhere else. Uh, and, and it will happen in the United States, but uh, we were the first ones in Latin America to do that because we saw an opportunity with UEFA Champions League to uh, bring great content to the service. Uh, that's worked out well. We've also done other things, innovated around pricing and product and packaging, launched a mobile-only plan in Latin America. Uh, again, we haven't done that anywhere else. Uh, it's worked very well for us. Uh, we've also pioneered some of uh, the things we're now uh, very well or very well known or infamous for like our lifetime promotion offer. Uh, This is something we started in Latin America. Uh, It basically means in the first uh, few weeks after launch you get 50% off HBO Max for life uh, if you sign up and commit to us early. Um, That was a a, a first in Latin America for us to launch. It worked very very well. It built a cohort of very loyal customers that want to retain 
that benefit and uh, therefore are very churn resistant. So Latin America is a really good example for how we've innovated on the business model and how we've tailored it to the needs of our audience in that market. Uh, I'd also say from a content standpoint, perhaps we look at Europe a bit more, but in Europe, our investment in originals started many, many years ago when HBO Max did not yet exist and we had HBO channels in Eastern Europe and uh, HBO Nordics and HBO uh, España as streaming services. We are making a major step up in terms of commitment to local original production in Europe. Uh, we're diversifying uh, the genres we invest in. Uh, uh, it's not only what you would typically think as HBO-style content, drama, comedies, series at that level of quality that HBO is distinctively known for, but we're branching out into children's programming, original children's programming, into uh, reality content. Uh, we just launched a, a show in, in uh, Romania that is a, a music competition show uh, we uh, uh, we are we are broadening the service to be for everyone in the family uh, uh, and and doing that also means from a content lineup and content investment standpoint going into places we've previously not gone before yeah it's interesting how when you look at so for example Disney and its star brand it's using that as a way to kind of age up um, because obviously when people think of Disney they more think of family and your kind of, HBO is kind of going the other way but obviously you have all these brands like Cartoon Network and, and, and stuff like that so in terms of how you're approaching that um, aging down how are you yeah, looking at those brands and in terms of where they sit on the service? So certainly we've been uh, quite successful and well-known in the children's and family programming category. Um, I'm not only talking about uh, big franchises and IPs like Harry Potter, which truly is a family franchise, but I'm also talking about our work with Cartoon Network, I'm talking about shows like Scooby-Doo, etc. Um, Looney Tunes as well, Hanna-Barbera, big part of what we do. But um, when you think about HBO Max, it is so much more than what HBO traditionally has been known for. Uh, we're broadening the appeal to include the entire family and to also open it up to audiences that maybe not the typical traditional HBO audiences. HBO used to be known as uh, cutting edge, uh, perhaps for more uh, sophisticated users, more affluent users. Our goal with HBO Max is to be a service for everyone, whether you're young or old, whether you live in the city or outside the city, whether you're affluent or less fortunate in life. Um, a good example is what, uh, what we're doing in reality programming. Um, so we've launched a show in the United States called F-Boy Island. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a dating show, beautiful young people on an island. Uh, it will remind you and, and your viewers uh, uh, a little bit of a show called uh, Too Hot to Handle on another streaming service. And I will say that if you watch the two shows side by side, they are quite different and I think uh, deliberately so. Uh, when we produce that kind of content, we do it with uh, self-awareness, with uh, with a full uh, diversified and, and mature respect for our participants and with self-awareness and irony. Uh, it's, it's smart, it's witty, uh, it's entertaining, but it is equally interesting and, uh, and, and stimulating in, in an intellectual sense. So uh, in Romania, we, uh, we launched a show called One True Singer, which is a music competition show. There again, I think we're bringing the 
a very distinctive HBO sensibility to how we produce that show and how we tell the story of the participants. So we're trying very hard to broaden the appeal of the service by doing things we haven't previously done and by applying what makes us distinctive and best in the world uh, in terms of storytelling quality and ambition to those kinds of programs. And how are you, in terms of looking at local production, which areas are a key focus for you? And, and maybe let's look at EMEA in particular. Yeah, so it's important to, to mention that production is is managed by Gerhard Seiler and Priya Dogra. Uh, that sits under their responsibility as part of WarnerMedia International. Uh, look, we produce in uh, all the major markets uh, that we're present in in Europe today. Uh, we have a team in Iberia, in Spain. Uh, we have some very strong successes there in the past. Shows like Patria, which was nominated for an international Emmy last year. Uh, we have a show like 30 Coins, which traveled internationally very, very well. Uh, and we have an upcoming show called Garcia that I'm very excited about. It's uh, based on a comic book, and uh, uh, we have very high hopes for Garcia worldwide. We also produce in Eastern Europe. Um, a strong history there, strong and expanding slate of productions. Uh, we have several new shows that are launching this month in Eastern Europe, including The Fall in Poland, uh, which is a gritty, uh, uh, dark crime thriller. Uh, we have a show from Hungary called The Informant uh, about uh, the political changes in Hungary in the mid-1980s before the fall of communism. Uh, we produce in Romania, we produce in uh, all over the Nordics. Uh, we have our first scripted show from Finland launching. We had Kamikaze earlier this year from Denmark. So we are in all the major countries that HBO Max serves today across EMEA and uh, it's public knowledge we have announced that we are starting production in uh, of original content in France and also in Turkey. Uh, so that those efforts are underway and I think you can expect that as we grow our presence and footprint across Europe we will produce in more countries going forward as well. Tell me a bit about as much as you can about how the Discovery merger will impact HBO Max. Mm. Yeah, there's not much I can tell you yet. The deal is obviously not done and complete as 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 of speak as of the time we speak here. But uh, personally, I'm very excited about it because I do believe that uh, when it comes to creating a service that speaks to everyone. The Discovery content will actually help us tremendously. Uh, Discovery is best in class when it comes to non-scripted content. Uh, content that really resonates with demographics that are very important to the future of HBO Max. Particularly I'm talking about female audiences, younger audiences. Uh, and also content that is really great uh, lean back watching for, uh, for families in the living room. So from a content strategy standpoint, we are excited about the possibilities that that this uh, relationship uh, will unlock for us. Uh, in terms of everything else, I think you've heard uh, commentary from some of the leaders at Discovery about uh, the desire to have one single service over time that brings all the best content from Warner Media and Discovery together under one roof. Uh, we believe that's smart. We believe that's the right way to go. Uh, and everything else really has to wait because we simply don't yet know what specifically will happen uh, and when the deal will close. And you were talking about the production activities in Eastern Europe there and obviously the eyes of the world are on that region you know, for truly horrifying reasons. What's your approach, I suppose, in, in, in terms of how the situation is developing? Um, 
we've obviously seen certain you know companies release statements and take measures in terms of removing Russian content or not making their services available. What do you think the next kind of phase of, of the industry's reaction to this situation is? So as Warner Media, we have uh, announced and committed to uh, not engaging in any new business in uh, in Russia. So you would have read probably that the Batman was not released in Russia, uh, and uh, and we stand by that. Um, we we uh, look at this situation with a lot of regret. Um, we would love to bring HBO Max to Russia, but that is not a possibility as the world stands today. Um, and uh, we will see what happens in Ukraine. Um, I'd love to see our service in Ukraine, of course, but uh, it will it will depend on a, on, a, on how the situation evolves. Uh, it is tragic. It's tragic for the filmmakers, the creators, uh, the community we are in in Ukraine. Um, we we are doing what we can to help. Um, obviously, through CNN, we have a major presence in Ukraine right now. We have a very large team on the ground in Ukraine. Um, our mission is to bring objective information about what's happening on the ground to the world. Um, but we, we hope this gets resolved. We hope this gets resolved for diplomacy. Uh, and we hope we get back to a world where um, we can deal with one another rationally and peacefully and uh, ultimately bring our content, our services back to Russia. And there's a Ukrainian presence um, here at MIT TV, um, which you'll will be reporting on on C21 Media. Um, but in terms of yeah, just generally, so far the atmosphere at, at MIT TV, um, from what you've observed, obviously we're we're still in a pandemic. Uh, we're here at the the Warner Brothers stand, which is kind of open air but covered, um, and there's a nice buzz about the place. So how are you finding the market? Uh, the market's been great. It's awesome to be back in person. Uh, it's smaller than it was in years past, obviously, but it is in person and you wouldn't really know there is a pandemic on. Uh, it's, it's reinvigorating to be here uh, with the community. Um, we hope this will uh, continue with MIPCOM later this fall, uh, obviously. Um, Look, I find, I find it fascinating to observe over the years what's going on at MIP TV. And, uh, very, very clearly there is so much um, pent-up demand for great stories from all over the world. It's a wonderful time to be a creator. Uh, there are more outlets than ever before for great stories. And um, we, we strive as HBO Max to be one of the premier platforms worldwide um, to work with creators. So it's been good on that front. Uh, in terms of Ukraine, it's been interesting to see how much um, attention is being paid to Ukrainian filmmakers and showrunners and, uh, and production companies. Uh, there's a lot of interest, uh, and I hope in a, in a small way we can be part of the help uh, that is provided. Johannes Larcher from the rapidly changing HBO Max. Still in Cannes, World of Wonder co-founder Fenton Bailey spoke to Nico about the evolution of RuPaul's Drag Race into a globe-trotting format, with a Swedish version the latest to sashay its way onto TV, the strengths of the company's WoW Presents Plus streaming service and plans to shake up the world of dating shows. I'm Fenton Bailey, uh, co-founder of World of Wonder Productions um, and uh, executive producer of RuPaul's Drag Race. So that format continues to go from strength to strength uh, with uh, the recent announcement of uh, a local version in Sweden um, joining lots of others now. Um, how has that process been? You know, it's been quite a long process bringing Drag Race uh, to different countries. 
You know what? It has been a long process, but I would say it's been an organic process. And I think that uh, broadcasters in different countries have faced all sorts of different challenges in bringing a show about drag to their screens. And so even though it has been a little bit longer than one might want, I'm really excited and thrilled by the way it has grown so organically and naturally because um, we owe so much to so many different people in different countries who've really championed the show and been behind it for a long time and campaigned for it and pushed for it. And so it's really just inspiring to see attitudes change and people understand that drag from what they might have believed it stood for or what it was to understand that it's it's such an inclusive medium that it is in fact an artistic medium um all about freedom of expression and all those things and that has taken that has taken time but i think it's been worth the wait and i think that as things progress you know as we see increase <laughs> we live in such a crazy increasingly polarized world um i think that, that the relevance of drag race becomes more and more pointed drag race is not an overtly political show but i think underneath it it actually it, there are so many life lessons in it and life lessons i believe are more valuable now than ever and it's been interesting seeing how a show that originated in the u.s on a commercial um, network, uh, I think so. Logo slash VHS. That's right. Logo, um, yeah. It's been adopted, I suppose, by lots of public service broadcasters, uh, particularly in Europe. Um, so, what do you make of that, and why do you think that is? I think ultimately the show, and and Rue says this himself, it's about the the perseverance or the resilience of the human spirit. And I think that perhaps at first blush. It doesn't appear to be that. You know, you think it's this kind of wild and crazy romp, all of which it is, but also it has these life lessons. And I think that public broadcasters understand in an increasingly commercially controlled environment that many voices actually do end up being excluded. And so public broadcasters have recognized that Drag Race is actually very on target for their remit of, of making sure that everyone is heard. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a weird thing because I think the show works in a, in a commercial environment and also in a public service environment. We have a lot of fun with uh, inversions in Canada and, and in the US in product integrations. You know, um, we love doing them, but we also sort of spoof. It's almost the drag approach, you know, so that it's very rarely a straight ahead endorsement. Um, we always end up sort of turning it inside out and upside down and having fun with it. Um, conversely, it's so great, and it sounds odd to say this, but it's so great that for the BBC, the prize is the prize is a show. It's not, or, or when you win a challenge, you win a, a Rupita badge. You know, you don't win a trip here and a trip there as, some, as you do on some of the other franchises. Um, and I think that's okay because ultimately... For any queen appearing on Drag Race in any country, it's a it's a platform, a launching platform for them. And it spawned a host of uh, a genre all of its own, really. There's lots of um, drag formats now. Um, how are you ensuring that kind of World of Wonder kind of maintains its kind of um, stamp on that genre? Well, you know, I mean. Um, 
look, you know, when rap came along, there were only a few rap artists, and I think people thought, well, that's enough of that. And that rap has grown and fundamentally eclipsed rock and roll. It wasn't, rap was not a fad, you know, it just, rock and roll now is rap, you know? And I think drag has been, as an art form and a medium, ignored for so long, people are waking up to the possibilities. And so ultimately, much as we would love to make every single show, um, ultimately it's a good thing. It really is a good thing. And, you know, the fact of the matter is that drag queens are brilliant entertainers with heart and insight. And I think the drag experience is to recognize so much of the rubbish of modern life and have fun with it and play with it. And rather than, rather than that being a basis for victimization and misery, it's actually a basis for joy and inspiration. And I think that that, that message of drag can be in an infinite number of shows. We've certainly um, grown it ourselves with, um, we've been very lucky with our partners around the world, you know, doing Drag Race and then Drag Race versus the world. And we're doing all stars in different territories. Um, so that's exciting. And also with Wow Presents Plus, our specialty SVOD service, um, we're launching a whole new range of originals like Painted with Raven, um, Work the World, God Shave the Queens, Sex Education. You know, not all of them are, are drag related, but feel in that same mindset of, I think, A, not taking things too seriously, and then B, being able to bring joy because the last few years generally haven't been about joy. I haven't been about joy enough, I would say, you know. <laughs> and what are your priorities here at MIT TV? Is it reconnecting with um, the business? Is it more versions of Drag Race? Or there's the documentary push as well, I think, that's been happening at World of Wonder. Yeah, you know, it's all systems go on all fronts. I mean, I think that, you know, it's funny. Some We're in this sort of unprecedented age of media and I'm quite old, um, so... I was talking to someone the other day and saying, you know, in the 70s, when I was at school, media wasn't even a career. It just didn't exist. And no one thought it would exist. And so when you come up to date, sometimes you have people saying, well, you know, Netflix, they're making so many shows. Is it too much? When is, you know, when are we going to reach this peak moment? And my answer to that is we're not going to reach that peak moment. We are living in the screen age. And more and more of our lives are about interacting with screens. That doesn't mean, as some cultural Jeremiahs would say, that we're all going to hell in a handbasket. No, the screen is a way we interact with people and reach people that we're, that we're geographically distant from. I mean, I think the whole lesson of COVID was like, you can do so many things remotely that we didn't think of or know that we could do. You know, Zoom existed, yes, but I never thought to use it. And so my point is, I think that we're just interested in doing more and telling more stories. And the DNA of a World of Wonder show essentially is that outsider voice. You know, if you're gay, I think you grow up with a sense of your marginality. And I think that one thing, consequence of that, is that you can have more empathy for other marginalized voices. And that actually the big insight 
for us has been everybody feels marginal. Everybody feels like an outsider. And that's, that's kind of the... So, so the end, the, the, the sort of irony is that niche ends up being mainstream. The marginal ends up being everyone. And so as far as we're concerned, we're just here to make and tell as many stories as we can. Um, and so Wow Presents Plus is a big focus of, of our work and it's doing, it's doing great. Because, you know, it's the one place where you can see all the different drag races. And I think what's unusual is that you may not always want to watch every version of American Idol in all these different countries or The Masked Singer. I mean, if you do, great. But I think Drag Race, you can watch every version of Drag Race and it's a completely different experience. You're doing Drag Race Espana, Drag Race France. You get an insight into that culture and how they feel about drag and gay people and everything. So much of having your own streaming service um, and the challenge of that must be, I suppose, in awareness. But I suppose you have a brand. Which, so is it kind of, um, to use a word you used, organic? Or are you planning or doing a, a, a marketing push, you know, similar to, to, to compete with the likes of Netflix? Oh, right. With- well, there is no competing with the likes of Netflix, right? And I, uh, you know love the big streamers you know you've got apple and you've got amazon and you've got netflix and you've got hulu and you've got peacock and more but we're not in that that game and um we don't have to reach every human being on the planet um um and i think that it's weird you know because yes it's an svod service but actually we sort of feel about it more that it's like a family and it's a shared sensibility. And even though there's a vast amount of different material on Mara Presents Plus and it's different genres, there's documentaries as well as drag race, as well as spin-off shows or adjacent shows, ultimately it all has a DNA in common. And I, I think that is just this sense of, fuck it. <laughs> this, sense of, this sense of joy, because that's really important. Um, you know, especially when times are really dark. And I think that, you know, globally, there's a, tr- a, a trend towards strongmen. And I see in many countries an attempt to turn the clock back to traditional gender stereotypes. And with that, obviously, put an end to gay rights and demonize gay people or demonize non-heteronormative people. Well, this is, this is A, ridiculous. B, it will fail. And C, it's fundamentally against human nature. You know, people fundamentally are perverse in the sense that they want to pursue their own individual desires. And that's what we should be celebrating. And that's what we think life is all about and what's worth leaning into. Rather than this attempt, you know, China, for example, talking about the sissy boys and the the, the sort of non-gender stereotype influences. It's like trying to put the lid back on, the toothpaste is out of the tube. And... It may not all be at once, um, but I think that ultimately people need stories told that they can relate to that advance that message. And without being very didactic and preachy, that's not us. We can entertain people and make them laugh while celebrating themselves. I think that's, that's what we're here for. And so we don't have to be the biggest in the world. We don't really, we don't have an algorithm that tells us what to make. We make what we think other people like us might want to watch. And if they don't, Fine. And does World of Wonder have a, a spin on the dating show genre? Because that is such a big <laughs> genre at the moment. We do have a spin on the dating genre. This is absolutely phenomenal. 
Um, it hasn't been announced, but it's coming soon. Okay. And it's, I mean, I'm normally quite modest self-retiring, but it is so good. It's, it's an amazing thing. In terms of, so, well, the dating genre, I suppose it has been, it's wildly popular, but I suppose if you look at all of them taken at, at, at face value, it's quite heteronormative. Yes. So is, is what the world of wonder spin? Um, it is not, I can tell you this, it is not heteronormative. The other thing I can tell you is that um, it really is about love. And because I think that, you know, I love those dating shows, but they're not always really about love. And or love rarely comes out at the other end. And um, this is not that. An exclusive to World Which of... makes my tiny heart explode with joy. And will it be <laughs> exclusive to, to WoW Presents Plus? or is it, it will be exclusive to WoW Presents Plus, yes. Fenton Bailey from World of Wonder. Blockchain Creative Labs and Bento Box Entertainment Chief Executive Scott Greenberg was also amongst those taking part in MIPTV this week. He spoke with Karolina Kaminska about how blockchain technology and NFTs are set to shake up the television business, with Fox Entertainment positioning itself as a major player, and what Bento Box has in the pipeline in terms of animation. Here we are in Cannes. Tell me what your goals are for MIPTV this week while you're here. What are you here to do? Well, I was, um, I'm a guest of MIP TV to speak about uh, NFTs and television. So my goals primarily here are um, to talk about the future opportunities of content production distribution using the blockchain technology. And then see some old friends and new friends um, for around Fox Entertainment opportunities. How have you found it so far? Are you, are you excited to be here after the pandemic? Yeah, it's great to be back. Um, it's nice to see... Uh, it's nice to be back in Europe. It's nice to see the industry thriving. Uh, I mean, my colleague and I were just reminds us how big the business is and how many people it takes globally to make great content and how international business. It's nice to remember that and see that. And so tell me a little bit about Blockchain Creative Labs um, and, and you know, what goes on at the business, what your, what your core mission is. So Blockchain Creative Labs is a Fox Entertainment company that we founded last spring. Uh, we're almost going on uh, 12 months now, and uh, the name is specific, blockchain, because it's blockchain technology, which is inclusive of you know decentralized databases of blockchains and NFTs and tokens and the metaverse and all you know things that go around there. Creative that we're a creative company first. We are storytellers first. We uh, work with creative people first, and that's first and foremost everything we do. And labs as, and we have many hypotheses where this can go. So our business's goal is to try those and figure out where this business goes. But Fox, Fox as a platform is a mainstream audience business. We're broadcast television in the United States. Uh, we are affiliate television. We're cable. We're sports. We're news. Uh, we're entertainment, and we have global partners around the world. Um, and so um, our goal is to how do we bring the concept of digital ownership of digital property rights through blockchain to mainstream audiences and also giving the tools to creators on board because we believe this new decentralized technology creates a closer one-to-one -one relationship between creators and audiences that create more value for everybody. So can you talk about some of the work that's, that's been done so far, how things have been going since launch? Yeah, um, so again, because it's about mainstream adoption, everything we're doing is about community, commerce, um, and um, 
um, content. And so we look for sticky communities that we can engage and move to educate them about digital ownership and movement across while also leveraging our platform. So we started with the Mass Singer of the U.S. rights and launched a Mass Purse, more of a collectible digital goods business that was really to help engage that audience, understand what it means to own digital goods and give them value for their relationship to the show. Uh, we license the rights to the WWE. We're their global NFT partner. Uh, we launched a site called uh, Moonsalt.com, which will be selling all NFTs for them. That'll be from video clips to digital collectibles to other aspects around there, and that's rolling out now. Uh, we have our new animated show in development called Crapopolis with Dan Harmon. Be Fox's next big animated hit, which we are producing. We're logging every asset. We're going to build a community, and then we'll ultimately be you know, distributing a show um, after it airs on the, on, on the network using the blockchain. Uh, we're working with the USFL, which is a new spring football league in the United States, giving tools to the coaches and, and to the athletes to engage their fans and make revenue themselves. And then we have um, a few new shows that we're going to be talking about soon, but really, look, it's not just about the collectible business. We're excited about how do we disrupt content production and distribution. How do we, what are new ways of having shows on the air? And we're hoping for the next global hit coming out of Fox that'll be owned by the fans, the creator, and, and us, and possibly the advertiser. And that's, that's where we're headed. And we'll, we'll be announcing a few more great opportunities very soon. What do you see as being the biggest opportunities um, in, in the blockchain NFT space? Look, um, I would say we're still in very early days right now. So... You know, to use an American sports analogy, if it's baseball, with the you know, the first pitch hasn't been thrown, we're still in batting practice. Um, we're speaking, we talk about the technology now, um, like we talked about. You know, if you think about getting online 25 years ago, you know, you get your AOL, you unplug your phone, plug in your modem. It was complicated and it wasn't easy. You know, uh, we talk about a fox how we taught America how to text using American Idol, and so we look at this now and say this text very early. So we're looking for to reduce the friction right now. So stuff, software, we're a software company first, having developed the tools and technology, working with others to make the process easier. But ultimately, I think at MIP, this audience, what I would say to independent producers and in our broadcast partners around the world, I think this is a huge opportunity to really create new value for IP, ownership for producers, engaging your audiences, and the world's not going to be taken over by the streamers. There's a whole other world where true value can be created for first-time producers, for big brands, and it could be regional and global. So, um, you're also CEO of Bento Box Entertainment. Yes. Um, what are your plans with the studio while you're here at it? Well, I'm here primarily for Blockchain Creator Labs in this trip, but uh, we're talking to broadcast and co-production partners. Uh, we, you know, we have the opportunity to air on the best platform in the United States, being Fox, which has historically been the preeminent place to launch every major hit. So we're always talking to co-production partners and broadcast partners globally to launch the next hit. So I think just being out here reminding we're here looking for next IP. And we have projects we have in development that are European-based source material and also production opportunities. So. Look, we know it's a global business. We're looking at our global broadcast partners to create the right relationships globally. So I'm always here, to, excited to talk to our global broadcast partners and also production partners. I'm a very big fan of Bob's Burgers. Ah, thank you. Um, can you um, talk about some of the projects that you've got um, in the works at Bento Box? Sure. Uh, well, the Bob's Burgers movie comes out this spring, which we're all excited about. 
uh, we announced um, there's a classic um, um, comic strip called Bloom County, which had Opus and Build a Cat, which we licensed the rights to, optional rights, which we we're going to probably excited to develop. Very excited about that project. We announced our project with E1 and Hasbro to bring Clue back. We have Grimsburg, a new animated series in production with John Hamm um, and two young, really amazing creators, which we're super excited about. It'll be a great show, kind of cha- a genre shifting show, um, which is a little bit different for us. Uh, we're excited about Crapopolis, obviously, the Dan Harmon show, which will really be amazing. Um, we have some great young creators that people haven't heard of. Um, you know, not on Fox, we have a show called Koala Man with a great young creator named Michael Cusack, who has Smiling Friends, and also uh, his other show on Hulu, which will be appears on Hulu hopefully soon. And then Central Park still on Fox, on um, Apple, which will near. And we have um, a show for with uh, with called Mulligan with um, Tina Fey, Robert Carlock for Netflix, which will be a great show. Um, we have a lot of great stuff in development. We're just, look, we're looking for the next young, young great creator. If you, we have some young people, Fox is a platform. Animation is the number one priority for them in addition to you know other things and so we have more airtime coming on Fox and we still sell to other places so for us it's about you know who's the next Lauren Bouchard who's the next Seth MacFarlane and you know you find the next Mike Judge looking at those great storytellers we have some amazing young female storytellers who are excited to bring to the world and pairing them up so um, it's a great time for animation so we're very excited to share is there anything um in particular that you'd you'd like to get working on um, in the future, whether it be, you know, a a different type of sort of genre or a theme or subject matter or anything kind of specifically there that you'd... So uh, Michael Thorne, the president of Fox Entertainment, um, he's very bullish on what's an hour-long animated drama. We have a few things in development which we're very excited about. I think think that'd be an exciting genre to break on network television. Um, and I also, so that's exciting. Uh, I, again, to me, animation's not a genre. Animation's a format. And, you know, we always, look, we love the sitcom comedy, which I think is tried and true, but how do we break a different genre network? Some of the other platforms have done that. Um, but I think we're very excited about global co-productions. We think there's you know, great storytellers and comedians out of the UK, out of France and Europe. And how do we find those and find real, how do we leverage the Fox platform and a global production pro- distribution platform. I think that's exciting for us, finding a real global hit that we can launch together. That's a very exciting opportunity, which as, as Fox Entertainment, we're excited to have those conversations. We have an Australian studio with Princess Pictures, which is a great comedy shop there. And we have a couple of amazing projects coming out there, Qualaman being one, and a couple other things coming out of there. So I look, between Australia, the UK, and uh, Europe, we're uh, very excited about co-production opportunities. And is is the, the more kind of kid-oriented space something that you'd ever consider looking into a bit more? Our primary focus at Fox is um, 18 to 34. We do produce animate, a few projects here and there. We have um, some things that have not have been announced that we are physically producing. They're more creator-specific and partner-specific as a whole for Fox. It is not their core format. Uh, Bento Box had a business that we divested that we own outside of it that um, isn't a kid's business, which we're very bullish on still, but it's not part of this business. Um, but I think from a Fox perspective, we'll do the work in the specific, but I think more for Quadrant, but uh, the kid business is not in Fox's current view. Now, Tubi, um, our AVOD partner in the United States, they are acquiring things um, and it's doing very well in the kid's space, but I think as an original production business, that is on our core. That's our core focus as of today. What would you say are the biggest challenges and opportunities in the in the animation world at the moment? Talent is is a 
it's, 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 there's more anim- the good news is people realize the strength of animation globally and how it travels and the value for all these up and coming new platform seeking audiences so um, there's more animation which is good for the business the downside is more animation <laughs> so um, the best of the best um, are not available so it's driving um, I do look I think labor prices need to go up so I think people need to pay their fair wage access to good production talent um, so I think those are some challenges but I actually think with challenge opportunities I think people are much more open to global resources and we now know there's we found some really great production partners and talent globally so it's enabled us to really access uh, global resources that before others wouldn't allow us to do because it was more domestic focus so I think that's one challenge um, I, I also think the time take, it takes time you know animation takes time to get on the air but I would say there hasn't been a better time for animation. So, uh, so for us, it's just uh, it's it's about resources and, and you know getting buyers to take a shot because it takes it's hard. You know, you buy a show. It's easy for it in live action, like oh, shoot me a pilot, give me the front nine, and then if it works, I'll buy the back. You know, get, get the back. You know, the back eleven. It's really hard in animation because it takes eighteen, you know, fourteen, eighteen months to get a show on the air. So that's that's a challenge that won't be there. But I think some technology will drive things forward and. Um, so yeah, I, I only see I only see opportunity in the animation space. No real challenges outside of um, training more people, and I think getting people trained globally to traditional skills, and also there's some classic skills that are not being taught in schools, like timing, which are classic hand-drawn tools, and making sure that the traditional skill sets are not being lost in, in technology, but. Um, you know, look, every generation is great storytellers, so I think it's more shots for storytellers is a great opportunity. Scott Greenberg. Finally, before packing up their suitcases and heading home, Channel 21 International Editor Nico Franks, C21 Kids Editor Carolina Kaminska and Drama Quarterly Editor Michael Pickard gave me their verdict on MIP TV 2022. Nico, Carolina, Mike, thanks for joining me. MIP 2022, how was it for you? Yeah, it's been great, thank you. Uh, sort of my first time back in Cannes for a few years and certainly the first time since Cannes series has, has been on the ground. So it's been great to, to see what that's all about in person for the first time. And, uh, and yeah, you know, come back to Cannes. It's uh, strangely different, but the same. <laughs> how about you, Nico, Carolina? Yeah, it's been great. Great to be back. And a little different to, I think, MIP, uh, MIPCOM in October, there was just a, an overall general sense of kind of relief and catching up, whereas a lot of people here have been, you know, kept overhearing about things, you know, being signed and stuff. So it feels like, the you know, the business is in-person business is up and rolling again. Yeah, it's been a very nice week. Uh, it's been good to put some faces to names of people that I've met over Zoom during the pandemic. Um, so that's been very enjoyable. Um, and just generally getting out and about, keeping busy and uh, enjoying sunny can. Weather's good. It's always uh, really has a kind of impact on the mood, I suppose, among people at the market. Uh, it's the first one back since the pandemic. So um, good good to have the sun shining on the event. And um, what's the buzz been like, though? Buzz maybe isn't the right word. I mean, I think the fact that there's no ads on the Palais, you know, those huge ads that adorn um, the Palais. Usually, I think in 2019, Fremantle had taken one out and a South Korean company for the other one. But this year, it was just a blank space. And and then just in general, there wasn't a lot of ads around. It doesn't, so for that, in that sense, it doesn't feel like there's a show, you know, that people are talking about. I don't know what that says about, you know, the general health of the event. 
but in terms of people you know using it as a as a way to to get together again then it's definitely definitely been of use yeah i mean obviously the industry's had a, a massive impact from the from the pandemic so no surprises really i suppose that that companies aren't spending big on on sort of advertising the shows that they are taking down there but what about the actual presence of uh, executives down there you know what, what are the numbers looking like I don't have any exact figures i suppose the thing about can is it's so spread out I think Warner Brothers, maybe in terms of US companies, has the biggest presence. They, they've taken the peer and obviously they had HBO Max International um, as the kind of main keynote. So a big presence from them. And then, yeah, there's a lot of people saying, you know, it's not busy. And then some people saying it is busy. It all just depends on who you ask and kind of what MIP, kind of MIP TV they're used to and how long they've been in the business, I suppose. So you haven't exactly been sort of pushing your way past people to get through the Palais and uh, along the Quasette? No, very easy to get tables in restaurants and things like that, So, which does make life easier. Because obviously it's good to be back in Cannes and the sun's shining and everything, but obviously the situation in Ukraine's uh, having a major influence on on the mood this week. It must have done. Yeah, and it was reflected in the in the schedule. There was a really important session on the Monday, which featured four execs from Ukrainian media companies talking about what the international TV community can do. And I suppose, you know, it was very important how they were phrasing it. They weren't asking for donations or handouts. They were saying, we have things of use. It's not just some, you know, a take, you know, we can actually, in terms of the Ukrainian TV industry, what it can bring, the stories it has. I think it's true there, you know, the international TV community can definitely um, benefit from working with Ukraine. Um, not just kind of out of a moral obligation, but also from a creative point of view. So there was the launch of the Ukrainian Acquisition Fund. That was a, a joint initiative from uh, a number of the, the country's uh, leading media organisations to, to try to rally support. Is that right? That's right. Yes. Yeah. So it's a fund that organisations can uh, contribute to and in return, they will get the right to air any programming that is made as a result. So, you know, we're talking quite large sums of money here, you know, the one exec uh, was asking for the what your what a broadcaster you know what they would pay on average for an acquisition or a pre-buy to do that and then and then see what comes out of it and you know that could result in some really really interesting and important programming. And we heard on C21 FM earlier in the week as well the interview that you did with um, the co-founders of Inner Gravity Pictures, uh, a Ukrainian production company, a very um, sobering and. Uh, uh, different kind of interview, I suppose, to one that you'd normally be doing in Cannes. It was, um, yeah, quite a, quite a privilege to to listen to the experiences of Max Dankovic and Taras Stadnikov. It was, yeah, definitely unlike any interview I've ever done before. And it kind of, yeah, reflects the kind of big tonal shifts that this year's market, you know, enough to give you whiplash. You know, on one hand, you've got Max and Taras, you know, talking about their family back home in Ukraine and the horrible, you know, horrific circumstances they, they're, they're in due to due to the Russian attacks. And then on the other hand, you've got a show about celebrity pole dancing being pitched at the MIP formats um, international pitch. And, you know, it feels a bit weird. And Max and Taras did say, you know, it feels very surreal for them, you know, absolutely understandably to be here. But they made the point that they're actually, you know, in the right place to help their country and 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 rebuild. And um, yeah, they've got some really interesting programming uh, on their slate that, yeah, I would urge uh, any any commissioner or buyer to, to take a look at. So a feeling, I guess, that the industry is really getting behind and, and doing everything that it can to support colleagues uh, from Ukraine. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, among the keynotes, Carolina, moving on to other matters at MIP, some big speeches from uh, uh, Candle Media's uh, Kevin Mayer as well, making a big splash down there together with Rennie Reckman from, from Moonbug Entertainment. What did he have to say? Yeah, so that was a good session to be in. Um, so I, I had interviewed Renee for our MIP TV mag prior to the event. So it was um, it was good to get uh, Kevin Mayer's perspective on it. Obviously, Candle Media acquired Moonbug last year. And um, one thing that he did, I mean, he he kind of echoed what I'd heard from Renee before about the they're sort of both the companies aligned strategies um, and they both have this kind of similar strategy of acquiring other IP or companies to kind of expand the wider brand. He did announce some news about a new product that's being made by both Moonbike Entertainment and Hello Sunshine. Um, Hello Sunshine being Reese Witherspoon's production company, which was also acquired by Candle Media last year. Didn't give too much detail on it, but apparently it's something that um, Reese Witherspoon has created herself, uh, is writing about, and there's potentially going to be an animated series on that. Okay. And um, am I right in thinking as well that uh, he addressed the Will Smith slap? Because Candle Media has a has a stake in, in Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith's uh, production company, Westbrook. Did he did he actually address that? I mean, he, he didn't really address it. Um, he was asked, because of the, the Candle Media stake in the company, um, how that would be continuing in the future and if it would be continuing in the future. There wasn't actually any mention of the uh, incident at the Oscars at all. Um, it was just kind of subtly, that question was sort of subtly asked and his response was that it's a great company and they're at 10% now and they'll see what the future holds. But no plans to pull out of that of that investment. And you were also in a session uh, about Squid Game as well, obviously one of the buzziest dramas to have, uh, you know, hit the international TV business in recent years? Yeah, that was a nice session to take part in. And actually talking about um, whether MIP TV has been busy or not, I think there's definitely been quite a few empty seats in some of the keynote sessions in the big theatres. Those sessions haven't haven't been full by any means. Squid Game session, however, was very popular. Now, that wasn't in one of the big theatres. That was just in a room in, in the Riviera building but still um people queuing to get in very excited to meet the the uh, writer and director and the producer of the series lots of people standing up at the back who couldn't who couldn't get seats at the tables yeah it was just quite uh quite nice to obviously it's been such a massive show so it was nice to hear a little bit about the background of it how it came to be um and the struggles as well with how it came to be which we we've heard of before in terms of you know it it kind of being pitched and rejected for for quite a long time until Netflix swooped in and, and picked it up. So yeah, that was uh that was just that was quite a nice um session to be in to hear from the creatives and and what 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 it takes to make such a hit TV series and what they're up to next. I think you also, Carolina, covered another of the drama sessions in which uh, uh, Sony Pictures Television, Wayne Garvey and, and Bad Wolf, the company that they acquired back in December last year, Jane Tranter, they announced the development of a new drama as well. 
Yeah, so I think that was the first time that both Wayne and Jane were talking publicly together since the acquisition. Yes, so Jane announced that Bad Wolf is producing a historical drama series called The Winter King. It's a 10-part returning series based on Bernard Cornwell's Warlord Chronicles, and it's it basically focuses on the Arthurian legends. Um, it follows Arthur as he evolves from outcast son to legendary warrior and leader set in the 5th century. And yes, Bad Wolf is producing that. Um, Sony Pictures Television is handling international distribution. And so that was announced during this week, obviously, um, and also during the session um, with Jane and Wayne. Jane talked about a novel that she says both Bad Wolf and Sony Pictures Television are interested in potentially trying to adapt either just Bad Wolf alone or, or with Sony Pictures Television. And she made quite an interesting point when she was talking about that. She didn't give any more any more details on that, but did say quite interestingly to quote her, that she likes the idea of buying a novel with Sony and hand selling it to many different territories, um, as opposed to just taking it to a global streamer and giving them all of the rights. Interesting. Um, so no sense as to where that project's going to turn up yet. Presumably Sony's kind of self-funding that one initially to get that off the ground. Mike, did you uh, get any info on that as well, the the series, The Winter King? Not not any more details than, uh, than what Caroline has just relayed to you, but I think it's interesting that coming from Bad Wolf, which obviously is known for a discovery of witches and, and his dark materials, it seems like the perfect place to to adapt that sort of historical novel. Um, so I imagine, you know, with their facilities at Wolf Studios as well, they're filming in Wales in the West Country later this year. I imagine that'll be sort of some top production values that, you know, we have come to expect from uh, from Bad Wolf over the last few years. So I think that's definitely one to, to watch out for. What else did you pick up on down in Cannes? You were following Mip Drama and Cannes series as well. What were the highlights? Yeah, well, it's been interesting. I mean, just following on from, from the, the Wayne Garvey session with Sony and, and Jane at Bad Wolf, um, Wayne was sort of saying how his ambition is for Sony to become the sort of biggest studio in in the UK and um, that sort of hit a theme uh, this week. Um, I was moderating a panel at the new MIP Times Can Series Connection event, which was a kind of two-day, uh, I guess it was a kind of a seminar. It was um, about 50 or 60 invited producers from across Europe, sort of there all day listening to various different panels about uh, you know, public broadcasters as the new innovators. Um, and then on uh, Monday morning, I led a session uh, with Media One, Studio Canal, Federation and Beta Film discussing the kind of new super producers, uh, the European kind of superpowers and really focusing on the sort of search for talent, how they're recruiting production companies, either as a majority, minority, strategic kind of joint venture partnerships. There are a number of deals that these companies are doing and sort of managing and the talent that they can then acquire with a view, obviously, to, to building new projects together. And they all have distribution arms. So obviously then with a, a view to selling the rights, um, it seems like a quite a timely subject in terms of the consolidation we're seeing in the US, the rise of the streamers coming over from across the Atlantic. And, and obviously there's a land grab, certainly in terms of talent, both on screen and off screen. And then even when you get the talent, you're still looking for studio space so um, I'm not sure that's the end of the problem just acquiring companies but yeah it was just interesting to hear Wayne sort of saying about you know, becoming the largest studio in the UK and you know seeing how that might be I mean on the panel Elizabeth Darbo from uh, Media One 
was sort of talking about their company. They've obviously got huge financial backers. They've acquired sort of 50 companies or so in the last six or seven years since they've sort of come to come to the fore. But she was talking about very much a, a creative freedom for these companies to work independently. You don't have to work with, with Media One or their other partners. You can obviously talk to whoever you want to do productions. But she was selling, being part of the company as a place where they will basically back your projects. They'll give you deficit finance. They'll handle the risk and let you go out and, and make your show. It sounds like a great deal. Um, I'm sure there are producers out there who have had mixed experiences, obviously not just with Media One, but with all different types of companies. And, and that's where you see the, the creative talent sort of leaving at the end of their their sort of whatever three-year initial term or whatever it might be. Uh, so part of the panel also sort of discussed how you keep the, the talent, how you make everyone sort of stay and become a big part of the family and, and Jan Moto from Beta Film talked about the fact that a lot of his producers have shares in the companies and the joint ventures that they set up with Beta. And that's kind of a, a carrot to kind of keep them invested in, in the companies that they've set up and, and not sort of walk away after three years. So that's certainly something um, I've noticed here that, you know, people are talking about talent and, and writers, you know, writers are, you know, top writers are just completely booked up back to back. And that then, you know, brings into question how seriously are you going to back new talent what kind of experience do they need to have who are they working with that would give you trust in them to be able to deliver a show it's obviously a lot harder work when you're working with a new inexperienced writer so it's sort of it's it's, it's sort of a, a, a chain reaction i guess in terms of uh, all these different issues are sort of snowballing into the next one and into the next one and it's yeah it's just a really interesting time and place to be at the moment you mentioned beta there they were alongside x-film creative pool uh, the producers of Babylon Berlin, the, those two companies worked together previously. And I think their, their new drama that they're developing, House of Promises, that was the winner at the MIP Drama Buyers Award. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. So um, alongside Can series, MIP had their, their annual MIP Drama sort of sessions where they sort of trail a lot of new series and, and House of Promises took the prize. I was at the, the Beta Brunch this week. I sort of dipped my head in to see what was going on there. And it was just absolutely rammed in the, the Majestic. It was just really popular. I'm not not sure what they were serving but uh it was very popular uh, and obviously Jan took to the stage and, and gave a, a speech he uh he received a, 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 an extended applause I would say when he sort of referenced his support for people in Ukraine and, and the production community there um, and also notably sort of commented how Beta's stand used to be next to a Russian stand and you know offered the opinion that that one day he hopes they'll be kind of back which is a, an interesting sort of point obviously we we hope things will, will smooth out over there and you know the community can sort of come back together so that'll be uh, interesting to see I guess in as, as things play out more important issues are obviously at play but uh, be interesting to see you know what kind of Russian presence there may be in the, in the near future but Beta Film obviously have a, a you know a great state they're certainly one of the most active distributors here and, and obviously their production group is is swelling as well they've had a lot of new shows that i've written about for drama quarterly one of their most high profile shows is the net which is this uh, interconnected series of global stories set in the world of professional football they've so far filmed stories produced out of austria and germany they have an italian version coming out uh, or starting filming in March. Uh, so that's already in production. And these all with a view to airing around the time of the Qatar World Cup, you know, highlighting issues of corruption. The Austrian version deals with players basically being used as medical guinea pigs and, and how performance is sort of the be all and end all for these sort of people. Uh, you know, higher up in, in these organisations. And then the German version is sort of centred around the fictional World Football uh, Association. You may gather where they've kind of uh, 
taken their inspiration from for that one. But that's um, interestingly sort of highlighting a lawyer, a female lawyer who ends up investigating trafficking of players from across Europe and mostly Africa, you know, with dreams of making it big as a professional footballer in, in the Bundesliga or the Premier League. And, and, you know, sometimes even being sort of you know, trafficked and, and left on farms or, you know, they don't have any passport details and, and literally just sort of left alone without, you know, the promise of, of actually making it as a footballer. So there's a lot of real life cases that that show has drawn upon. And I wrote about that series on Drama Quarterly this week. So Beta Years is certainly one of the most active uh, players that I've seen here this week. So if um, Beta was among those picking up the awards at MIP Drama, that wasn't the only awards ceremony that was happening this week in Cannes. There was the International Format Awards as well, of course, supported by C21. And That's My Jam, the NBC Universal music competition show from uh, Jimmy Fallon. That that was the kind of the big winner from that event. So, Nico, formats you felt were, were pretty strong at this MIP TV, stronger perhaps and, and more of a buzz around them than drama. It was, although, yeah, as Mike says, there was a lot going on in drama, um, but definitely reality TV seemed to be what came up most in my conversations with execs. And uh, I was at a dinner and the genre bikini or speedo reality got mentioned, uh, which I don't think is a new thing. I know young, attractive people not wearing many clothes, you know, has always been a, a popular thing on TV. But I don't know, for me, it feels slightly like stuck in the past and I think is ripe for a bit of an update. I think there was also talk by HBO Max about how they're looking to kind of bring a, a HBO feel to reality TV. And it'll be interesting to see what that looks like. Johannes Larcher mentioned kind of a self-aware elements of self-awareness and things, which I think, you know, could be interesting. Maybe, you know, reality TV for people who don't like reality TV or won't admit to liking reality TV, maybe. But yeah, I think... There's a lot that especially the dating genre can do to kind of modernize itself rather than just having straight men and women as the participants, you know, opening it up. And I was speaking to some producers called Grammar Film and they were saying they're committed to doing that. It does make the production a lot more complicated and potentially costly, you know, from a financial point of view to make it more inclusive. But they say if that's what it takes, then they're willing to do it. And it'll be interesting to see how commissioners react to that, because I think heteronormativity kept uh, coming up in some of the conversations. And Fenton Bailey, who is a, a really, you know, well-known producer, one of the key parts of why Drag Race is such a, a worldwide phenomenon through him and his colleague Randy at World of Wonder, he was telling me, although he couldn't tell me too many details about the show uh, but a dating format that they're doing that he promised wasn't heteronormative and uh, could shake up the dating genre so it'll be interesting to see what that looks like okay well thanks very much nico and uh, carolina and mike i'll let you pack up your bikinis and speedos that you've no doubt been diving into in Cannes and enjoying the weather down there get them in your suitcases and head back to london to join us at c21 hope you had a good week and look forward to hearing from you more on c21 fm that's all for this episode, but don't forget to visit C21 and Drama Quarterly for plenty more from MIP. You can hear more discussion by tuning into our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll hear new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.